Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at the founder hour. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Chriselle Lim. Chriselle is the founder of The Chriselle Factor, a YouTube channel and blog she started in 2011. Formerly a stylist and magazine editor, she started the blog as a passion project which evolved into a fashion, beauty, and lifestyle content network followed by hundreds of thousands of people. Eventually, she would go on to launch Bumo, which brings licensed education-based childcare to the workplace as well as acquire Fleur, a luxury fragrance house where she serves as its creative director. Fleur has been quite the hit. Their missing person perfume is repeatedly sold out in the United States and has amassed a 200,000 person wait list. We spoke with Chriselle all about her upbringing and the journey leading up to this point. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. A lot of people are surprised by that fact because I think everyone just assumes that I've been in California my whole life. But I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. My parents went to college there and then... Right after moved to California. So majority of my childhood was in the Bay Area in a small town called Danville. I was probably one out of five Asians at the time. So, you know, I could get into this a little bit later, but there were definitely a little bit of a identity crisis struggle growing up in an all Caucasian neighborhood. Mm. But then what happened was I ended up moving to Korea and I was really excited about that at a young age because I was like, yes, I get to be with my people. But Mm -hmm. once I got to Korea, I was Korean American. So I never felt even more foreign in my life in in my own motherland. And your parents were born in Korea and moved here for college? Yep. So they were born in Korea and that's the first language. And so I went to an American school there, lived there for about four years, and then moved back to California. And then once I graduated from high school, I moved to L.A. and just kind of stuck around in L.A. and built my entire life here. So what what did your parents do uh, in the States? My so my dad has always been an engineer and he's always been kind of an I.T. My mom wanted to get into fashion, but when she had my sister and I, she kind of gave up that passion and became a full-time stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. So I, I think she kind of vicariously lives through my sister and I because we're, we're both in fashion. Yeah. Is fashion something that was uh, discussed a lot in the home when you were growing up from your from your mom? Well, at the time, you know, there was no social media. There was no, like, ways on the internet to look up how to have a career in fashion. Sure. So I don't think she like even... magazines. Yeah, and... Mm-hmm. There was really no access at the time, so I don't think she even thought that could be a career. But she would always be making clothes for my sister and I. So she would go to Joanne Fabric mm-hmm. Store and like make get patterns and create these like really f- silly matching outfits for my sister and I. So that was kind of her outlet of creativity. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was, I guess, my first exposure in fashion was just seeing my mom literally sitting in front of the sewing machine all night just yeah. sewing matching clothes for my sister and I. And and did she did she consider that fashion herself in terms of like a craft that maybe wasn't very common or was it just something that like she just growing up learned from maybe her mother or her grandmother and it was like a thing that, you know, like you know, like a lot of women growing yeah. up learned or not really? I think so. I think, okay. you know, she just 
saw her mother probably do the same thing. So I I don't think she ever associated with like, oh, this is going to be something that I pursue, but something that she just loved to do, like since she had a lot of time at home. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, so that was kind of my early days. And then once I moved to LA, I, one, realized that there was a whole lot of me, which Asian American kids living in LA. So that was really exciting for me because I've never been exposed to people that looked like me, mm-hmm. yet alone that were in entertainment, that were in fashion. And so it gave me this kind of energy that I never had of just being able to dream and being able to to see myself in the future. And yeah. so that's when I really started pursuing. Was there anyone, I guess as far back as you can remember, that maybe like you looked looked up to or were inspired by? The only person who I saw on mainstream entertainment media, who's actually one of my closest friends now. Her name is Suchin Pak. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the first MTV VJ. Um, and I don't know if you guys remember TRL with mm-hmm. Carson Daly. So it was yeah. her and Carson Daly. I saw a clip of that on TikTok today. Yeah. Right <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they must have kn- known that I was coming yeah, to, probably. to the studio. So yeah, so it was Suchin. And that was really it. And also Lisa Ling, who's also mm-hmm. a dear yep. friend of mine. Yep. Um, but she was more on the news side, yep. um, more so on, yeah, on, I guess, a broadcasting side. So those are probably the only two Asian role models that I had, but I didn't even know them at the time. Yeah. Real quick, you mentioned Joanne Fabrics. I always wonder how they're still around. Um, <laughs> do you have any insight as to how that's possible? I actually just went into a Joanne, Joanne's Fabrics. Joanne's, yeah. Joanne's I know what it's called. Fabric. Joanne or Joanne's, yeah. Something. I still see it on my drive home every day. It's right there. I'm just like, I don't know why it's still around. I mean, it's pretty run down. Yeah, big time. I guess there's still a a consumer for that. Yeah. Kind of like the last minute. It's like a JCPenney's, I feel like. Yeah. It's always next to a JCPenney's. Might even be the same company owned. I'll tell you who's not going to sponsor us, and it's going to be Joanne's. I'm sorry, JCPenney's or Joanne's Fabrics. It's a really great podcast. You should sponsor it. We'll get Nordstrom. So. When did you guys move to LA? So I moved to LA right out of high school. And so I knew that I wanted to not live in the Bay Area anymore. So I I wanted to just come to LA. At the time, I didn't know that I wanted to be in fashion. But it was still a way for me to be close enough to my family, but still far away. And this was around what year? God, what year did I graduate high school? You don't um, have to tell us that, but I was just wondering what year. You came well, that was the year that I moved. <laughs> so I would have 2000. I'm 38. So. Yeah, so probably 2002. 2002. 2002. I yeah. think it was 2003, actually. 2003 ish. Yeah. So now you're 37. Yeah. So 2002. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll give you that. Um, yeah. What was kind of the scene? I mean, we obviously have been born and raised in LA, me and Pat, but what was the scene like in the fashion space in 2002? Because, I mean, social media was, I mean, MySpace was around. I think, mm. uh, what else was around? Tumblr was around. There was something called AsianAvenue.com, mm. okay. which was like a MySpace for all the Asians. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. that social that networking thing was just maybe starting to take yeah. off at that time. Yeah. But MySpace was also just for college students at that time. I don't know if yeah. you remember. Interesting. It, yeah. 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 I think it, no, no, it's not, not that was Facebook. Right, Facebook. Yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. 2004, I think, is when Facebook yeah. started. So it's like started. right around the social media like yeah. emergence. Right. Yeah. So fashion, then for me, again, I was in college just aspiring to somehow get my foot in the door in fashion, but it was really not accessible at all. Mm-hmm. The only way to access fashion at the time was through magazines. And that's when I think really the height of print editorial mm-hmm. magazines was there. Um, and maybe there was, um, I think, style.com where you could see all the collections on the fashion shows. I think that's about it, to be yeah. honest. There You're was, talking about like Vogue and Elle and those types like yeah. Cosmopolitan. And like even Vogue.com and Elle.com didn't really exist then. It was just yeah. the the glossy print magazines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I remember just living at the bookstores and buying all the magazines and studying the collections. Yeah. And when I moved to LA, I, I didn't know anyone, but I did a lot of internships. And so through my internships, I met some stylists and then I started assisting them. And then one thing led to another. And I think that's really why I wanted to come to L.A. Because I knew that there were a lot of people in fashion in L.A. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was really hard back then to really understand or get your foot in the door 
in fashion at all. Yeah. You know, having moved around a bunch, you know, living in, you know, Texas and then Northern California and then Korea and then LA, um, you mentioned like having this kind of identity thing that you're like, or like fitting in type of thing, but did you make friends pretty easily? Like, were you someone that was pretty, you know, like, would you go up to people and like talk to them or were you pretty like closed off? I was a shy kid. I was a very shy, awkward, insecure Asian child. Mm. And I think the only way I was able to make friends with people was to dress really well. So I I remember saving up all of my money and I've worked pretty much my entire life. Even in high school, I had, you know, odd job just to be able to shop. And so I would save up all my money to buy all the trendiest outfits just because that was my way to fit in and to get compliments at the time. You know, in high school and middle school, you... And what were those brands at the time? Juicy Couture. Mm-hmm. Yep. The track suits <laughs> with the rhinestone yep, on the yes, butt. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Um, juicy in the back. Yep, yes, yeah. Juicy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, what else? I spent all my money on Juicy Couture. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was That the, was it. That was, that was it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I, I always say fashion was kind of my armor back then because... I was so insecure about how I looked. I looked so different. I was extremely tall for my age. Um, I didn't really grow into my body until way later. And so I would always be dressed to the nines. And I think I won like the best dressed award in high school. Yeah, and, superlatives or whatever. Yeah, and I think a lot of people associate that with confidence. But it was actually because I was so not confident that it forced me to go in that path. And That's what I was going to ask you is so – I don't look like a fashionista at all when I'm not. But I mean, in, you got the Patagonia. That's true. I got the Patagonia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but in in college, I took a fashion and communication class, and that was just my way of being around like hundred and literally it was a two hundred person class, and it was hundred ninety nine women, <laughs> and it was just like a nice little hack. But I remember we talked a lot about like just you know that's the first thing you see right mm-hmm. when you see somebody. You know, you see how they're dressed. I mean, if you don't know them, especially, yeah. uh, it's right the outward appearance. Whether or not that's right or wrong, it's just it is. Um, did dressing well, having that good style, you know, whatever the trends were at the time, did that boost your confidence at all, or did it start boosting your confidence at all? Were you becoming more social? I think because I always say true confidence doesn't really come from external values, but I think. At the time, it did the job for what I needed at the time, which was trying to fit in. But I think true confidence didn't really come until like really recently, like Mm -hmm. through the later years, because I think you really have to understand who you are. But yeah, at the time, it did give me the confidence that I need to walk into a party or like go out with my friends and feel good and not insecure. So yeah, it did. But I I don't think I really understood the true meaning of. of If you could, I mean, if you could go back to yourself at that time, like what would you say to yourself that you know now? Can I cuss on this? Oh, please. Yeah. yeah. Not give a fuck about what anyone thinks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I cared so much about how other people viewed me and I want to look like my peers. All my peers had blonde hair, blue eyes. I would like wear contact lens to have eyes that looked like theirs, wear wear makeup to make my eyes look bigger like theirs. But yeah, it, 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 to honestly not really care about what other people thought and just, yeah, but obviously, I could say that now in yeah. hindsight. And it's just a piggyback off of Pat's question. Do you, like going back, do you think that had you not been in those situations, had you not been, you know, an Asian American or just Asian like and had to deal with those challenges that you would have been the person that you are today? No, I mean I Obviously it's hard to know, but like yeah. With just kind of given the challenges and struggles that you talk about going through. Like, I guess, like, yeah, how much did that play a role yeah. in this, like, fire maybe inside of you of, like, wanting to become successful? I think a really big part. Yeah. I think, first of all, I'm an Aries, which means I have a lot of fire within me. <laughs> and... Don't ask us what month that is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely don't know. Pat, my... I think I'm an Earth sign. I'm, I'm uh, Taurus. I don't know. Good yep. sign. I like Taurus. <laughs> okay, cool. I won't tell you mine. <laughs> Gemini. Gemini. Mm. It's tougher. Yeah. It's tougher. I don't know. <laughs> it's tougher. So I think because I had that fire always within me and I always knew that I wanted to become better and more confident, there was something to always work on. So I think it kind of put the fire in me that I, and this is again my personality, but I always wanted to better 
myself. So I'm always like, I need to be the best dressed. I need to be the best at this. So I'm always competing with myself. So I think always feeling not included and always feeling like the outcast of the group um, was good for me. I mean, at the time, it didn't feel like that, but yeah. I think it was good for me. But what advice would you give to somebody today who's listening, who's, you know, who admires you and your work, mm-hmm. who's surely listening to this podcast and is saying this to themselves, whether they're in high school, college or beyond, hey, I'm a little bit of an outcast. I'm a little bit, uh-huh. you know, I'm not the most social person, yeah. but I am true to myself. What should that person do or like, you know, how should they think about themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think. For me, because I was so introverted at the time, and I, I still kind of identify as a mixture of introvert and extrovert. But Omnivert. Th- Omnivert. Om- is I, that what it's called? Yeah, Omnivert. learned a reason. We, we ah. both took this like personality test that, uh, long story, but I guess I think we're both omniverts. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think I fit yeah. right there with yeah, you. Yeah. I think a lot of people. To the club. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of omniverts and introverts are truly just the most creative people. I agree. But they're also a little awkward yeah like just because that's how we channel our creativity Mm -hmm. and when you're young you think that's weird you think that there's something wrong with you because you don't want to go out and socialize right it's like these two conflicting parts of you sometimes and it's like where is this coming from yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and so i would say for anyone that's struggling with like fitting in or anyone that's listening that feels like they don't belong i think really that's a gift because you're able to really figure out who you are, spend a lot of alone time. And that's when I actually got the most creative. That's when I discovered that I love fashion, that I needed to to stay in my creative lane. And so I think it's a gift to to be a loner sometimes. To be it's honest. interesting that you say that because I think that is like the catalyst for maybe it's like that aware that self-awareness that mm-hmm. causes you to start like seeking mm-hmm. what it is that will like, I guess will make you like a little bit more happier or satisfied or whatever versus being like content and thinking that like wherever you are is like the best place to be and not there's nothing bigger out there for you. Yeah. So in a way it's like if that didn't happen, that feeling, it might not even cause you to like want to explore. Yeah. I think that's the key thing is I think always appreciating what you have, but also not taking it for granted. So not being content is always how I describe my life not that I'm not gracious and thankful for everything that I built and that I have today but I'm always trying to strive for more and try try to strive for better and I think that's the key is you're always just trying to push yourself mm-hmm. yeah you talked about or you just mentioned you know finding that love for fashion was there a moment in time specifically or was it just kind of a build-up and talk us through when that happened yeah so when I graduated I again high did, school yeah, high school. When I graduated high school, I didn't know. I knew I loved fashion, but I didn't understand how I was able to make it into a career. Mm-hmm. So my cousin went to um, Cal Poly Pomona, mm-hmm. um, and he was doing accounting. And my mom's like, that sounds like a good gig. It has to deal with money. So <laughs> since you don't know what to do, why don't you just go there? So I ended up going there <laughs> and studying accounting, realized that I was actually not very good with numbers. Um and so there was a small, tiny program called, I think it was the agricultural program, which had to do with textiles and fabrics. Mm-hmm. And that was their small fashion program. So I signed up for that. And I actually was very fascinated and interested by it. When I realized that I'm not supposed to do accounting and more so fashion, I dropped out of Cal Poly and then went on to FITM, the Fashion Institute. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's where it began from because that's where I started interning for a lot of PR companies, different stylists, and just really learning the road. I didn't really understand what I wanted to do in fashion. And so I just had pretty much every job you could think of yeah. um, in fashion. Mm-hmm. And and then it was when I um, became the assistant for a, a woman named Tanya Gill. She was a stylist of a lot of the big celebrities um, at the time. And that's when I really fell in love with styling. So I started styling and became the um, style editor for a local magazine Mm -hmm. called Jen Lux Magazine. And then that was the start of the digital boom, like the very beginning, Mm -hmm. YouTube, Mm -hmm. um, blogs. Mm -hmm. And at the time, um, my, my ex's best friend, his ex, 
was one of the so my ex-husband had a best friend and the girl that he was dating at the time yep um her name is michelle fawn who mm-hmm. is oh she was like one of the first youtuber the first yeah. beauty yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and he was dating her at the time mm-hmm. and she, i was like what do you do she's like oh i'm in makeup I'm like oh what counter do you work at because at the time yeah. you associate yeah, yeah, yeah. makeup yeah. artists with which nordstrom do you work nordstrom at <laughs> or macy or jc penny or jc or, or yeah yep. trying to buy them back trying to bring them back to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. and and she's like oh no i i create makeup tutorials on youtube and i was like what what is that yeah. and then so she showed me and i just became so fascinated and she was like you know there's really no one doing that for fashion mm. she's like let me help you make like one fashion video and i was like sure why not i was in college at the time at fitum and that video went viral i think within like three days it had over a million views well, and a million views is still a lot today but crazy. at the time it was crazy yeah. right yeah um and so because i was in the magazine world i was accumulating okay this was like if a million readers were reading this magazine, like a million people would just watch my video and it was how to like tie a scarf. And so that's when I was like, there's something here. And so I continued to do this. I started to create fashion videos. And then I realized that um, as a one woman show, I wasn't able to create enough videos at the time. Mm -hmm. So I started my blog and it was called the Christelle factor. And those two kind of grew together. And that was the start of the digital boom fashion blog, YouTube channels, and brands were starting to take notice. And then, um, yeah, that was 15 years ago. So, Chriselle, this is an obvious question because I feel like people would know what it is, but they might not. What defines styling? Like, what is it exactly? Styling? Styling, yeah. When you say, like, you know, you got into styling, you were working for a stylist, Mm -hmm. what is the day-to-day, what does that that job entail? So, there's different types of stylists, but... So there's celebrity styling, which is obviously, mm-hmm. you know, a celebrity has a red carpet event, the Golden Globes, and then you're you're pretty much the liaison of, one, you're the creative director of architecting an image for a celebrity or- like what they wear, their look. Uh, what they wear. But you're also the liaison uh, between the celebrity and the brand mm-hmm. that you're putting on them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. brand relationship is a huge part of styling. Got it. Um, also, for me, I didn't really do too much celebrity styling. I did more um, editorial styling because I was with the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say that it's a December issue. You want to create really fun, festive looks. So you creative direct kind of what that storyline is going right. to be. And then you pick out the brand. Some of them are sponsors. Some of them you just mm-hmm. have a relationship exactly. with. Mm-hmm. And then so you're going back and forth with the brand. So, so. a lot of your job or... I know not now, but like in that position is you're trying to connect with and create relationships with brands and their representatives at the same time, obviously see what look works best in that given, you know, moment or for that given shoot or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's a couple things in that entire kind of bit or story that you just told um, that I want to kind of touch on. The first is being able to like pivot quickly when like, for example, you're in this accounting program and you know, a lot of people might just write it out and go take a job in accounting and mm-hmm. just be miserable and like not have enough, I don't know what it is, courage or something to say like, actually, I'm not good at this and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like maybe a hit to your ego of like, I thought I wanted to do this. I thought this, you know, this has is a lucrative career. I'll make money. But something inside of me doesn't feel right. And I'm not like a quitter or someone who's like, yeah. you know, gives up easy. But it, it sometimes it's like important to make a quick pivot or change into something that is better for you mm-hmm. and so the fact that kind of you're able to do that i think is really important and then that's also tied to you know when you when you met um Mich- michelle michelle um like you kind of jumped on this opportunity mm-hmm. pretty quickly and didn't like sit and say like oh that's cool but like i you know i have other things i want to do like yeah. you saw something was happening there and there's like you know you were kind of going towards the action as mm-hmm. opposed to like away from it yeah um because that malleability of sometimes in your head you have this vision of where you think you're going and you miss things along the way yeah. and you don't take those pivots. Mm. So just something I wanted to touch on. I mean, I don't know if that's something you've ever thought about. Yeah, I, I always use two words that are so important to me for me, my my team and myself when we're working on things and we're talking about the business and the future, but it's pivoting and evolving. And if you're not doing 
either one of those two, you're going to eventually, we always say evolve or die. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really kind of the, 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 the topic that I always talk about because, you know, whether it be Instagram or TikTok or like Bumo, I have a, a childcare company called Bumo and then the pandemic happened and then we became an online company for teaching kids. And then now we have these centers and then, it's it was all pivoting, right? Mm-hmm. And you have nothing is guaranteed, right? Nothing in life, any business that you start, relationship, nothing is guaranteed, right? So you have to be ready to pivot. And I think pivoting is good because along the way you're you're growing yourself and you're getting better at it. But yeah, I mean, for me, people are like, I hate all these new platforms that are coming out. For me, I'm like, I love it because it allows me to evolve and try something new yeah like um, you've you're used to creating like let's say youtube videos and you have to maybe get out of your comfort zone to like create a tiktok video but if you don't evolve like you said you die and also of- i think people try to hold on to things too tightly and for too long i think you have to have a, a strong awareness to understand when it's okay to let things go mm-hmm. and for me i i start off with youtube i don't really i haven't done youtube in so long same thing with my blog um when tiktok happened i jumped on it we kind of blew up on it during the pandemic and so i think not being so attached to anything um and being really kind of i always say don't get too high on the highs and don't get too low on the lows because you just have to be cruising in the middle what allows you to make those decisions? I mean, and, and how quickly do you make them? For example, with the TikTok or YouTube to Instagram to TikTok transition, like, is there some sort of a process or is it just like, all right, we're doing this YouTube thing. We're going to keep it going. We've got to jump on TikTok. All right, time for TikTok, for time for YouTube to die. Like, I mean, talk us through that process. I think you have to give everything a chance. I don't think it's fair to just like drop something right. like out of nowhere for no reason at all. So, for me, it's I give it my all to the point where I'm like, okay, my time and effort is not, there's no ROI in this anymore. Right. Like I'm just wasting my time at this point. And time is always working against me because that's all of us. We don't have enough time, right? Yeah. And so I think you just have to kind of weigh that out to see if it's worth it. And also be patient enough in the beginning to give it some time to right. to grow yeah do you yeah. think that it's hard like i just think and i hate to bring it back to jc penny but it's actually like <laughs> a real reference here but like with jc and macy's for very long like in that space they didn't really have to evolve much right like they brought new brands on on and in and over time they kind of just do the same thing but so far i'm put until a certain point they were doing all right versus you look at today's businesses and today's creators it just feels as though there needs to be constant change constant yeah. pivoting there, you know, you're building a, you know, a brand, but your platform is changing all over, like all the time. Yeah. Right. You're no longer in the office. Okay. You're remote. You know, now you're on TikTok. Now you're in the metaverse. Now you're on GPT-4, whatever, chat GPT, whatever yeah. it's called. But it's like, it's constantly changing. Yeah. Do you think that it has become harder now today to be a creator, to be an influencer, to be a business and a brand versus early 2000s, mid to, you know, mid early 2000s? I actually think there's more opportunity now um, just because there's just, again, the the industry has evolved and grown so much that there is a chance for you to actually make it if you want to try. But yes, it does feel very scattered, right? And it feels yeah. like there's a lot of everything right now. Yeah. But I think the messaging you really have to get right is what are you trying to say here like what's your thorough line what what's your your consistent messaging for me it's evolved right over time like for me when I first started it was all about fashion on a budget because I was in college and then I went into luxury fashion and then I had kids so then it became more about motherhood Mm -hmm. and now that I'm you know divorced and kind of going through this period of my life I'm trying to showcase you know women can go through hardships and still have an amazing life so I think having a strong messaging, it doesn't matter what platform it's at, but you have to look at yourself, whether JCPenney's or Macy's or myself or you as a brand as a whole, like they should be able to look at them and be like, oh, she's all about, you know, she's all about wellness, motherhood and fashion. 
So no matter like, what platform, a clear you're, like you know messaging, exactly. clear, but also yeah. like the authenticity of it. It's like whatever you're actually going through in your life, that's kind of what you're choosing to focus on and and connect with others on. And I think that like so going back to that first video and like it going viral at that time, which I mean a million views is like definitely viral at that time. Yeah, uh, so, you know all we see it more today with new platforms like TikTok where someone might get a lot of views or like a video might go viral but they're not able to really like ride that wave for a yeah. long time but you built like a sustainable career out of yeah. that out of like the, the videos and then the blogging and then the you know the companies now but like it all kind of led to that point yeah. and and so i think that clearly like you were kind of you were you were you had like a deeper thing that you were trying to like connect with people on and it wasn't just like this video or that video. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's the connection with people at the end of the day. People watch. They will keep coming back because I always say it's either you're entertaining, they're learning something, or you know, they're they're getting something out of you. Virality is luck, right? It's it's pure luck. You can never plan for virality. If we all knew how to go viral, we would be doing that yeah. all day long. Yeah. But we don't. So you can never bank off of going viral in hopes that that's going to make your career. And mm -hmm. even if you do go viral, it doesn't it's fun, but it it's not going to make your doesn't, career. It also doesn't last like you it said. Do, yeah, it doesn't last. And so it's really about um the community that you're building, right? And the messaging and how you connect with them. For me, I'm very authentic to my audience of what I'm currently going through in my life. And they keep coming back for inspiration and motivation in that sense. Of course, fashion too. But I think having that clear messaging of what you stand for is why they're going to keep coming back. This episode is brought to you by More Than Profit. If you enjoy the Founder Hour, we think you'll enjoy this podcast too. It celebrates entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders that are living and working with purpose. The host, Bryce Butler, sits down with his guests and shares personal stories about what it's like to succeed and even fail. But more than that, what motivates them beyond just profit to press forward in their work and as a leader. Check out More Than Profit wherever you get your podcasts or at www.morethanprofit.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. So how long... Um did you run the Chriselle Factor before starting the brands that you have today? Um, the Chriselle Factor on YouTube was, I think it's been five years since we stopped. So probably about like 10 years. Well, That's including yeah. the blog, the mm -hmm. website too? They were yeah. kind of both like in tandem. Yeah. 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 They were built together and, you know, we're figuring out how we could, because I think, it's a, the pendulum's always going back and forth, and I'm sure you guys have noticed this too. Like yeah. podcasts are is massive, mm -hmm. right? But it, I think there's a people are craving for like form different formats that are not quick and short anymore. They're looking for meat on the bones when mm -hmm. they listen to something because mm -hmm. you know you could scroll through TikTok mm -hmm. yeah. for an hour and not remember a single thing right. after you scrolled, right? right. Yeah. And so I think they're, the long form content is. It's like it's like there's a time and place for both, and everyone's just trying to figure out what that is and yeah. when that is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what that's for. Like certain videos and certain pieces of content, you yeah. just want a quick thing, and then some things, like there's like really sh short podcasts, which are great too. Like sometimes I'm running, I'm like I want a shorter podcast, but then the long form stuff is good if you have like some time and you really want to like dive deep into somebody or a story or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think. That's exciting. I've always been a big fan of long form because I think there's more storytelling abilities. I've always been about storytelling. Um, that's how my all my brands, all my companies have really been built. So I started Bumo, um, which was kind of the very first business outside of fashion that I started. It was essentially bringing childcare to the workplace because when I had my first child um, eight years ago, I was really frustrated by the fact that I felt like I had no options as a working mother. Like either I had to put her in daycare or I had to completely be a stay-at-home mom. There was like no in-between. So I had this concept and this idea actually that I, I discovered in Korea and experienced in Korea and wanted to bring back here, which was integrating work and you know family life together. And then the pandemic happened. So we got an amazing space at Century City Shopping Center, right next to Nordstrom and it was ready to launch in 2020 and of course mm -hmm. we all know what happened 
And so then we quickly pivoted to become an online education company because we raised all this money and we're like, crap. Wait, what was it before? You said you started eight years ago? Oh, no, you had your uh, first kid eight years ago. Eight years ago. And, and the started, idea came eight years ago. Got it, got it. And then you actually started it right right before the pandemic. Well, we've been working on it for a while. Yeah. And it was supposed to launch got it. On tw- in 2020. But yeah. then the pandemic happened. And so we got pushed back. We did our fundraising. Um, but we're like, we can't go out of business mm-hmm. right now because we haven't even opened it. So we quickly pivoted to... Um, an online education. My co-founder, she is in education. So, mm-hmm. you know, she was able to pull that off seamlessly. And so it became one of the most popular uh, one, one through or K through uh, eight years old um, online platform for kids to learn different languages during the pandemic, which is so wild because yeah, that was yeah. not part of the plan. Is it supposed to be kind of like a comp- like complimentary to like their current like education or is it supposed to be like their full-time Well, at education. the time, parents were stuck at home with their kids. So it's really to, one, get their kids off of the screen, but yeah. be on the screen in a more educational way and also to learn something. And so we were running that for about almost two years. And then obviously when the world kind of opened up again, we opened up our, our location at Westfield. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we realized is that, and the center is a beautiful center, one side is like a, a joint workspace so parents can work out of there. And then the other side is full on child care. So it's it's not like the child can go into the workspace. It's or still separate separated, yeah. together, but separate. Um, but what we realize, this one location is great. We have a like a four-year wait list. Like you can't get onto the wait list because it's just the, the space is too small at this point and it's already maxed out. Um, so we're like, how do we grow this in a in a way where we don't have to keep opening up more stores? Because it, one, it's so expensive; it takes such a long time. And so then um, we're like, well, Uber. You could order food. You could call a car. You could even find a dog walker. How come there's no apps where you could open it up and find reliable help for your kids? And so what we started to do was talk to all these daycares and all these centers around us, hundreds of them, that all had empty spaces. So there's always like a few children that don't come to school because they're sick or they're just not able to make it. And so now what they can do is through the Bumo app, they could actually show how many spaces are available in their in their um, city and if you're like oh I, I'm going on vacation to let's say or a work trip to New York and I I don't have my nanny with me where can I find a Bumo that has space for me you open up the app and then you can see where you could get help and actually drop off your kids nice. and yeah. so it's turned into that but that's just an example of how we pivoted yeah. so far from the original concept of mm-hmm. what Bumo was um, you know, I'm still very involved, but my my co-founder kind of runs that show because that is education and childcare is her her jam, her bread yeah. and butter. Yeah. Um, and so that's Bumo. Fleur is my my other business where I spend most of my time. It's a fine modern fine fragrance company that uh, we actually acquired. Um. Not too long ago, and we relaunched it. It oh, okay. was an so existing it was, brand. Oh, interesting. So Can it you was. Talk to us about that process. Yeah. yeah. So, like, when was it founded originally? It was actually founded about ten years ago. Got it. And it was a beautiful brand. It, they marketed it as like a super clean, holistic brand. Um, the packaging was all white. Very, very simple. Uh, my business partner, Ben, he's kind of a legend in the beauty industry. He was ready to acquire the brand because he loved the brand. Yeah. And then he called me up and he was like, hey, um, I know you're going through a divorce, but I want to acquire this with you. And I was like, you're crazy. I don't know if I can do this right now. I'm just going through a huge life change yeah. transition in my life. And I'm not even a fragrance girl. Like, I never considered myself as a fragrance girl. I always considered myself as a fashion girl. And what did that entail, purchasing the brand? Like, obviously, the brand rights and everything. Were there, like, 
manufacturing and operations and that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, I mean... Proprietary like blends and things? Yeah, so yeah. we did keep a few of the blends. We kept uh, three of the most popular blends, which are Hanami, Sundara, and Ameline. Because, you know, we also want to respect what they built. And it, it was a really beautiful brand. And they also created a very niche, like, following that just loved, loved Fleur so, so much. So we wanted to What was to the following? That. Or, like, who was the following? Um, someone who really lived, like, a very clean, holistic life. Because that was their push of who the Fleur audience was. Which, you know... They were actually one of the very first to integrate on the packaging all the ingredients that went into the fragrance, which is unheard of in the fragrance industry. So that was already very forward. Yeah. And so I think they got initially their their following from that experience or from from that. And and so when we took it over, we want to obviously pay respect to the brand because it is a beautiful brand. And but we also want to make it youthful. We also wanted to make sure that um Gen Z, the millenn- like everyone loved it and the price points were really good. So we came in and pretty much redid everything on the marketing front, um manufacturing and all of that with some of the, the existing scents we kept. Um, but we also developed a lot of new ones as well. Yeah. And so that was that was a really wonderful experience as i was learning as i yeah as as i was always found like the fragrance i guess industry like really interesting because you have all these like i mean you have like the big name brands that everyone knows that are like in the department stores and then you have like these like all these other brands that i don't want to say they're competing because it's like it's like there's like a different customer for each one but there's like sense of loyalty that like once you like a certain fragrance or like like a certain product you, you like just keep wanting it right like yeah. And is that what you've experienced or? Well, I think that was kind of the existing fragrance idea of how how people shop for fragrance. But I think Fleur, when we came in, we completely disrupted that model. Yeah. Um, you know, now the new consumer, they want not just a closet full of clothes. They have their own fragrance closet now mm-hmm. and dependent on their mood and how they're feeling that day they'll grab a certain fragrance to top off their mood or top off their outfit. So, yes, I do agree that I think even my generation, we're so used to having our signature scent, right? Mm-hmm. But I think kind of the new generation, they don't really have a signature scent anymore. They they really have multiple uh, fragrances dependent on how they want to feel that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what, what do you think is like the reason, though, that some fragrances, like I think it's Chanel number... I've, it's been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be the yeah. big brands, right? But like for some reason, it's still like a very popular perfume. Well, you know? I think it's a legacy, right? Okay. And yeah. you can never deny yeah. that. You yeah. can never deny, you know, something that has been built that has such a long history, that yeah. has a long, long history. So I think there are iconic brands and certain scents and fragrances that people just want to have even on their vanity because yeah. it defines kind of the industry right Mm. um but i think now it's it's changed quite a bit you see a lot more indie fragrance brands even indie beauty brands that are really coming up and disrupting the market um also i think how people consume content and discover brands have changed a lot since social media i think before it was the the big dogs the top guys the executives, the big brands telling us what is going to be the next it thing. That's mm-hmm. no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's the people. It's TikTok. It's the yeah. consumers that are Not to mention like, the distribution. Because yeah. before you had to like get into like these big box stores and stuff, right? Like there wasn't as much of a direct-to-consumer yeah. thing when it came to like fragrances or makeup and things, fashion even. Yeah. Uh, but now with like social media, there kind of is and like e-commerce and all that kind of stuff. I'm, it's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Crystal, I'm curious. Like I know both of us pat and i are we enjoy our fragrances but what are or how does the gen z and the what's the new one alpha is that their alpha i think so right <laughs> alpha, yeah yeah i never knew that one but like anyways the the sub 25 year old sub 20 year olds are they actually wearing fragrances like talk to us about like who the consumers are today is it growing is it declining i'm just curious about the entire industry in general i think it's growing massively yeah. Um, 
I think it was actually more so my generation. I'm in my almost 40s, late 30s, um, that kind of associated fragrance with my parents or the older generation. But my daughter, she's almost nine. And she is, and I mean, you could blame me, but she's obsessed with fragrance. And she... I don't let her wear it to school because I don't want her to like cloud up the her her classroom. <laughs> but she has like her her little desk with her different scents, and she's like, "This is Ameline. It makes me feel pretty. This is what I wear on vacation when I go to Hawaii." And so they already have that association of I want to smell a certain way to feel a certain way. And I think again, it's just changing through social media mm-hmm. of how people are are really discovering products and. Yeah. Just the consumer has changed. Yeah, it's very interesting. I remember, like, you know, growing up, my grandpa used to wear like Dracar Noir, you know, <laughs> and like that's, but like, but that was like the signature. Like, you know, yeah. you, you walked in, you're like, that's what I'm gonna smell. Yeah. And if you didn't, like, something was wrong. Like nowadays, it's what you said, right? Like even today, like I, like I have a whole, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, obsessed when it comes to it. But like, there's like 30 different options, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I'm just, I'll mix things up sometimes too. And I'm just like, yeah, two like of this and three wearing. of this. Yeah, you know, like. That used to be a why. huge no-no, by the way. Like yeah. that, yeah. Used, you're not allowed to do that before. But yeah. now it's like all about fragrance layering, right? Interesting. Yeah. 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 So times have that. changed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you made? Didn't you make your own fragrance? I did make my Paris? own fragrance in oh. Paris. And, oh, wow. and I will say the perfumer or whatever they're called told me that I have a very good nose. I was like, yes, I'm Armenian. Look how big it is. But like <laughs> beyond that, like because what what happened this is such a tangent. But like she was like, figure out something that you want to be doing right now. And I was like, I want to be having like drinks in mexico and so i created like a pineapple coconut with like nice. christmas sorry christmas in mexico during christmas oh very specific okay. so, so then a little kind of, musky exactly yeah. Yeah. cinnamon, cinnamon. <laughs> and, and like it was interesting just knowing like you know the the citrus kind of evaporates first right and then yeah. like the different oils like i didn't know about this like science like to the it top, yeah the, heart, the top the base. exactly yeah. so so it was very interesting, the whole process. That's why I was curious as to what the audience is now because, like, I know our friends and whatnot wear it in the Armenian or Middle Eastern culture, but I don't really know how others perceive yeah. fragrance. Yeah, but. and also, you know, going back to kind of how people associated fragrance before, when we launched Fleur, relaunched Fleur, mm-hmm. um, we relaunched it with a, a, a scent called Missing Person, which was a brand new scent that no one's ever smelled before. We weren't at any Sephora's yet or any counters. So you couldn't actually go to a counter and smell it. Um, and so we, my business partner and I were like, we don't know if this is actually going to work. Like, yeah. can we actually sell a fragrance that no one can smell, but just read about and want to buy it? And so again, because I'm all about storytelling, the whole concept about missing person was, and because I was going through my divorce, um, it was all about missing something, right? So it doesn't have to be a somebody, but it could be a time in your life or a void. Like for me, the biggest thing that I felt was after being with somebody for so long, waking up to an empty bed, I felt like so weird waking Mm -hmm. up, right? And so I wanted to bottle something up where once I sprayed it, it like warmed me up. I wouldn't feel lonely. It it, it felt like skin. Um, and so the base of it is, is skin musk. So the one of the reasons why Missing Person went so viral on TikTok, it had a 200,000 person wait list. By the way, this is the That's scent crazy. that no one's ever smelled before. Yeah, yeah. Um, was because everyone longs for something right in their yeah. life everyone misses something whether it's a moment in time whether it's a certain person yep um and so what started happening was um people would purchase it and they would spray missing person and then they would start crying and be like oh my god this reminds me of my dog that just passed away or my mom who doesn't live with me anymore or my ex-boyfriend or whatever it was and it allowed people to talk about something in their life that was important to them and so it became more than a scent it became um almost therapy for people to allow them to feel and so if you type if you go on tiktok and you um type it search floor missing person there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people just crying 
Wow. And I don't even know if I have to type it. it just, I think I just heard it. So interesting. I'm adding on. Oh, yeah. You're going to get ads. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, right it's interesting. Yeah. You, you bring up an interesting point about like having, like not being able to smell. Like, I feel like the fragrance industry was like the one of the original like experiential retail things where you like you have to walk into like a mm-hmm. boutique or like a nordstrom or something or like a magazine ad or that yeah i mean that, flip that thing that, oh, like, oh, like little samples yeah. and yeah. yeah smells like tape do you think that <laughs> that'll ever change i mean do you see that because so many things have moved obviously online and people don't even care to go to the store for it anymore but i mean i think it's changed already yeah i think because yeah. of social people are now trusting not just influencers, but also just the people, like community, like everyday people that are posting authentic reviews. And by the way, this is a different conversation, but I think influencers also, the impact that they have have also changed as well because a lot of times things are sponsored and so people kind of question that. But now it's the real people that are buying for that are buying these products and just doing these reviews that people are seeing. Yep. And those are the people that they trust. Right. And so they're like, Oh, I don't need to go in and smell it. This person that I follow seems really in love with this fragrance and she seems so excited about it. I'm just going to order it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's already changed a lot. The amount of times that I bought a makeup product because I saw some like 16 year old girl on TikTok try it like a found like, you know, like yeah. that, that doesn't happen usually, but it's changed now. So, Christelle, I'm just curious because like, you know, it's one of those products, just fragrance in general, where you're not buying it every like, at least I'm not buying it every like two months, right? You buy it, you use it for several months, maybe even a year. I know their shelf lives are not supposed to be that long, but how does it look like from, you know, from the business end, like to have those recurring customers mm-hmm. or how do you keep them loyal to the brand when they're not constantly purchasing stuff? from you so our most popular product are our travel size Mm. um which has enough juice but not enough (laughs) (laughs) especially if you like it yeah and so people tend to buy the travel size first to make sure that they like it um and then they'll commit to usually the larger size the full-size bottle but then also another how we do our drops is quite often we drop. I mean, what, the first year we dropped the fragrance almost every month. Now we've slowed down a little like bit. Like a different one. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So every, I think this year we've already launched two. And then we are launching three more this year. And so you have to keep the customer engaged. Right. And you can never think that just because they have one, that's it for them. You always have to innovate you always have to come out with new things is that pretty common though i feel like most a lot of like the fragrance houses are not coming out with that many on a year are they like you're 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 kind of like constantly like innovating i guess like iterating but we're also an indie brand right yeah we we don't have the luxury of being like oh yeah like sticking with like one with one although missing person arguably is probably the hottest fragrance on the internet right now yeah um so we could probably just build a business out of just from missing person but that's what the model most people do is they take one mm-hmm. and they kind of write that out, but they could do that because they already have a brand. Yeah, like makes Everyone sense. already knows them. It's like, this is the Chanel fragrance. This is the Louis Vuitton fragrance. This is the, whatever that is. And they don't have to do that many drops for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're a new young indie brand. So it's really important that we're continuing to innovate, continuing to come out with new juice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a couple of questions about the transition from, you know, being this stylist influencer of heritage brands to, you know, to to fragrance and education. What was that transition like? Did you enjoy it? I mean, did it do you think that the platform and the audience you have built and had built helped in the success of the relaunch of Fleur and then uh the launch of the educational programs? Yeah, I mean I have to say I had a lot of um, imposter syndrome, especially when I was building out Bumo on the childcare side because, you know, how I build businesses is when I feel like there's a need for it. Like I I find a problem and I want to create a solution for it. That's how Bumo came about. But I I don't know anything about childcare. So I, I went through a long time feeling like 
who am I to build a travel care company? Um, but obviously for me, it was important for me to have um, a partner that was a, an educator, but also an expert in that field. And yeah, even for Fleur, I had that too. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a nose. I'm not someone who's a fragrance master. I'm a girl who's in fashion. I'm a creator. I, I, at the heart of it, I am a creator. That's who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I went through that. But what I realized is that sometimes that's the best thing you can do is you're coming in with fresh new eyes. Yep. You're, you're doing things differently. You know, if I came from a fragrance background, maybe I would want to stick to a certain way of how most people do it. But because I didn't have that background, it's almost like, um, yeah, it's like, yeah, knowledge is power, but also sometimes when you just don't know what you're doing, mm-hmm. it, it also, ignorance is sometimes bliss too. Yep. And so I kind of did it my way of how I, how I would do it. Mm-hmm. And that was through storytelling. Right. Yeah. How much of your platform do you think benefited and benefits Fleur, like I guess another way of asking this question is, had you been not a creator, you're just Chriselle, you get this opportunity to buy this company and relaunch, how much harder do you think it would have been to get this to a place of success? That's a hard question, but I think I do have a little bit of a leg up because I people know me, especially if they're in fashion and right. beauty, and so they get exposed to it. But I also think people are more critical for that reason. Mm-hmm. They have certain expectations for people that are known to come out with certain things. And so I was really nervous because, mm-hmm. you know, this is a new category that I've never been in. And I thought that when I launched that people would give me a hard time about it right yeah so there's good upsides and downsides mm-hmm. to it but mm-hmm. i think ultimately it did help um but i always say and my business partner believes this influencer and celebrity brands there's a ton of them yeah. they're everywhere right so the brands have to grow beyond the person mm-hmm. it has to grow beyond the actual influencer or celebrity for it to last right yep. because if you tie it too closely to the talent once the talent is not relevant anymore the brand won't be relevant anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so for me it was really important that it wasn't the Chris- Chriselle show it wasn't about me it was about the product right mm-hmm. of course the people that follow me they will naturally discover Fleur through me but I also wanted to make sure that there was a lot of people that discovered Fleur because of Fleur, not because of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we've successfully have done that with Missing Person. Um, the amount of times that I get people coming up to me being like, I had no idea that you were the owner of Fleur. Like I had no clue. Yeah. And that makes me feel really, really good because right. that means that the brand is holding its own weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good product. Um, looking ahead, you know, for not just flirt about yourself, like what would you, what would you say like the foreseeable future? Like what do you, is there, are there other things outside of flirt too that you hope to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I would love flirt to be a household name. I would want everyone to be, to know what flirt is. Probably not. I mean, hopefully not in 10 years, maybe in five years. <laughs> yeah. Um. So really scaling flirt and getting it to a place where the whole globe knows about flirt. I think that's my main main focus. Um, but also for me as a person, you know, I, I've gone through a lot of transitions these past few years, and I, I feel very strongly about um, educating the next generation of making better choices. So now I'm really working on kind of my narrative as a content creator of, you know, um, things that I didn't learn, um, such as what a business deal should look like, prenups, all of that. Like these are things that my parents never taught me that majority of our our parents never talked, especially as women. So yeah. I think continuing to grow Fleur and then also continuing to just inspire and just educate the next generation of, of girls and women through my platforms. I know I'm about to ask like a, general question but fashion was and is kind of the basis of how you began your career and still obviously are very much into fashion 
where do you see the state of fashion today in general? Um, like, especially coming out of COVID, I feel like there was almost like a lull in mm-hmm. terms of creativity yeah. and, you know, not a lot of new ideas and new innovations in the fashion world. Not that I know much about fashion, mm-hmm. but just following the major trends. Where do you see it currently? And then where do you see it kind of going from here? I think there's a lot of opportunity for emerging and new brands and designers now and new talent. I, I think what COVID has kind of expedited for a lot of us is just creativity and spotlighting um, the underdogs, really. And and I think it's going to be, hopefully it'll be more about that, is being able to um, not just our money into the pockets of the big mega brands, even though they're always going to be around, but more opportunity for new talent, young designers, um, creatives, and hopefully uh, we could all support that. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome uh, chatting with you and, you know, learning about your story and like sort of all this wisdom that you've accumulated, you know, throughout your journey. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I'm also a really big fan of your podcast. So, an honor. <laughs>